Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. When I was reading the news a while back, uh, I stumbled upon a headline that caught my eye and just was too irresistible not to click on. I think that was a double negative, I'm sorry. Uh, The headline said this, Man travels from Greece to Poland strapped underneath a bus. I mean, how could you not click on that story, right? So as I opened it up and I continued to read, uh, whoever wrote the story came up with this compelling headline. Uh, it It read like this, The man who was 19 years old was hidden near the gearbox attached with a belt according to a spokesperson for the Polish border guard. Polish transport mechanics discovered him uh, as they were checking the bus, and when they found him, uh, the young man asked the question, Italia? He had been hiding under the bus for 1,700 miles. In fact, he had arrived in southern Poland after picking the wrong bus from the same line in Athens, Greece. So he wanted to go from Athens, Greece to Italy. Got on the wrong bus, ended up in Poland. The spokesperson continued, he was exhausted, frozen, starving, but in good health. The would-be immigrant had traveled through Macedonia, Serbia, Hungary, and Slovakia with the gearbox cable scratching his face every time the bus changed gears. He was carrying no papers, gave his first name only, and said he was from Kabul, Afghanistan. The young man was detained by Polish authorities pending a decision on his request for refugee status. There will be times in life when we end up where we did not plan to, where we did not expect to, or where we did not want to. And there will be other times when we are just holding on for dear life with a belt strapped to the gearbox underneath a bus, desperately hoping where we end up is the right place because we know we're not in control. Thankfully, God's word has encouragement for us today on this particular topic of control and God's direction for our lives, especially when our lives seem like they're out of control. That's what we're going to be talking about today as we continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 1 and pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder so that you can follow along with me. Uh, And as you turn there, allow me to give you a quick background uh, or review the background on the book of Philippians. Philippians is one of four letters that Paul wrote uh, during his first incarceration in Rome for preaching the gospel. That is detailed in Acts 28, 
the other letters, the other three letters I'm sure you're familiar with, they are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, he helped establish the church in Philippi uh, in Acts 16. So the backstory on Philippi and the church in Philippi is, is in Acts 16, if you want to read about that later. Uh, Paul, uh, on one of his missionary journeys, led a couple of families to faith in Christ. Uh, and those families then ended up being part of the core that started a new church in that city. Uh, that was about 49 to 50 A.D. It's now 61 to 62 A.D. So it's 11 to 12 years past the starting of that church. And Paul is in Rome, incarcerated, and he's writing back to them uh, a letter of encouragement and a, a thank you note. Uh, when the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison, they dispatched their pastor, a, name, a man named Epaphroditus, to go check up on him, to do a welfare check on Paul to see if he was okay and needed anything. Well, during Epaphroditus' visit, Paul writes this letter and sends it back with him to the church in Philippi. Uh, if you missed uh, last week's message, week one of this series, I want to encourage you to check it out. Well, you can listen to it online or watch it online and get more details on Paul's reasons for writing, the key words in the letter, and much more. Our theme verse for this series is Philippians 4.4. If you haven't underlined it in your Bible yet, I want to encourage you to do so. It's a very simple verse and easy to memorize. Paul just simply says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Throughout this letter, the apostle is going to uh, tell us one simple truth over and over again in different ways. And I'm going to keep highlighting it as we work our way through the four chapters of this letter. And, and, and that simple truth, it's simply this. The secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ. That's what he's getting at. The secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ. Simply put, to have the mind of Christ in the New Testament means to see and think and feel the way Jesus would about the world, about life. Uh, we achieve this by ingesting his word so that it transforms our minds and our hearts. And Paul emphasizes this throughout his letter by using the Greek word phroneo. I'll show you this over the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, how to spell the word and what it looks like, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to touch on it briefly. Phroneo means to understand or to uh, think or to direct the mind. It's a word that he uses seven times throughout Philippians, which isn't a lot, but he gives a lot of weight to it. And so uh, that's where I'm getting sort of this big idea for the series, which is the secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ, is that Paul brings up thinking, how we think. And the role that thinking in our minds, our thoughts, plays with our emotions. And so that's going to come up throughout this series. Having the mind of Christ allows the Apostle Paul to, in essence, say, so long as Jesus is glorified and the gospel is spread, I don't care what happens to my life. That's what he's going to say also throughout this. And I might add, that's God's will for every Christ follower. He wants every Christ follower to be able to say, so long as God is glorified and the gospel is spread, 
I don't care what happens to me. We'll get to that later on whether you can say that or not. It's uh, one of the times, though, when it is difficult to have joy, one of the times when it is difficult to trust the Lord is when you feel trapped in difficult circumstances. But Paul's going to show us today, and this is our big idea, he's going to show us that trusting God's sovereignty can help us rejoice in difficult circumstances. It's hard, I'll admit it. I struggle with it. But he's going to show us that trusting in God's sovereignty can help us rejoice in difficult circumstances. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a term given to all the Bible verses that describe God's rule or control over the affairs of the world for his glory and our good. God's sovereignty is sometimes referred to as his providence. You'll see that interchanged, uh, excuse me, those two words used uh, uh, in place of each other, synonyms in the scriptures and in books about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Um, So another way to explain it would be God's providence or sovereignty is his hand working behind the scenes of history in coordination with man's choices to achieve his plans. It's mysterious. We'll never understand it completely. But the scriptures are clear, and history is clear, that God is working behind the scenes, almost like a puppet master or a chess player, to orchestrate certain things getting done that he wants done in the world. Now, many of you see the two-column table on your uh, outline or your sermon note handout, excuse me, and I I know many of you have probably seen it before. Some of you maybe have not seen it, but I I wanted to quickly review it again uh, because it will help frame what we're going to talk about today. Uh, God's will, in a very simple, general sense, can be broken into two categories in the Scriptures. Uh, Down the left-hand side of the column, you see God's moral will. The Lord has a will, a desire that man pursue him and pursue holiness and and avoid sin. That's God's moral will. It's revealed in his word. It's something we must choose to do. He desires it, but it only happens sometimes because it's dependent on us. And us as fallen sinners don't always choose to do God's moral will. Uh, And you see some key scriptures listed there that give you examples of where that uh, comes up. On the right-hand column is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is revealed through time. And within God's sovereign will, there's sort of two subcategories. There's what he causes to happen. It sometimes is called by theologians his decreed will. And then there's what God allows to happen. And that's sometimes called his permissive will. Both decreed will and permissive will come under the umbrella of his sovereignty. Now, this category of God's will, the right-hand column, his sovereign will always happens. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. Uh, And you see some key scriptures there. There's some verses that talk about um, no one can overrule the Lord or thwart his ways or uh, what man can stop what the Lord has already decided, things like that. Um, 
It's referring to God's sovereign will. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that everything we saw yesterday on the news, everything we experienced yesterday, was part of God's sovereign will. He either caused it or allowed it to happen. All the events in the world. Everything that we experience today and everything we experience tomorrow will either be decreed or permitted by God's sovereign hand. That means that there's no such thing as luck, chance, or karma. Biblically, there's no room for those things. Uh, what it doesn't mean, though, is it does not mean God condones or causes sin. It doesn't mean that we are no longer responsible for or should ignore sin. And it doesn't mean we should fail to pray or seek wisdom or consult the scriptures or godly counsel as we make decisions. So, um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18 is what we're going to be looking at today. This next section of scripture uh, contains some refreshing encouragement about how God's sovereignty works on our behalf in difficult circumstances. So if you would, look at the text with me. I'm going to read verses 12 to 13. Uh, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's the first thing that Paul tells us about God's sovereignty and difficult circumstances, and it's this, accepting God's sovereignty increases our contentment. Accepting God's sovereignty increases our contentment. Paul, contrary to what the Philippians expected, see, they, they sent Epaphroditus to do a welfare check on him. They were concerned that Paul maybe was discouraged or uh, in poor health, or is he being treated well, or is he in some slimy dungeon in the dark, freezing cold with mold all around him, and what, what kind of conditions is he in? And um, to their surprise, Paul says, hey, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We, we need to not miss the irony of what Paul is saying here. Prison is designed to contain someone who is breaking the law so they don't break the law anymore. It's also meant to humiliate and shame the prisoner. And then on top of being in prison, some prisoners are put in restraints, of which Paul was. And you see that in some of your Bible translations. Sometimes it says, uh, the ESV says, in my imprisonment. Uh, other tra Bible translations say, my chains. Uh, as far as I understand, he was chained all day and all night to a guard. At least one guard next to him. So prison confines a prisoner who is breaking the law, and then some prisoners are put in restraints to further restrict their movement. But here's what we've got to make sure we don't miss. Paul says that what was intended to stop him from spreading the gospel actually caused it to spread further. It's the exact flip opposite. He, so much so that he actually does a play on words in the original text. He uses the Greek word for advance, which actually sounds similar to the Greek word for hindrance. And what we're going to see in these verses is that what the adversary and the Roman government were trying to stop 
the Lord actually turned for good. So, so the irony is, he's supposed to be confined and restrained, and the gospel spreading stopped, halted. That's why they locked him up. Paul says, actually, the gospel's advancing. What? It's advancing. It's advancing. Now, let me drive this home and connect the dots to our personal lives. Paul's imprisonment, I think, serves as a metaphor for any restrictive circumstance beyond our control that prevents us from reaching a good desire or goal. It could be a job that we can't get out of. Or it could be a job that we cannot get. Uh, It could be a financial bind we can't get out of or a healthy financial goal we cannot reach no matter how hard we try. Uh, Another example of imprisonment that we might feel or a trapping that we might feel is uh, perhaps it could be a spouse and you've always wanted to be married, you've been praying for a spouse and you just can't seem to get a spouse. Or it could be a marriage that won't heal no matter how hard you pray. It could be a chronic illness that will not heal, or it could be a healthy body that continues to elude you no matter how healthy you try to live. Now, I want to clarify something. Paul's imprisonment is not a metaphor for our denied sinful, selfish desires. For example, feeling trapped in an unhealthy marriage because you have no grounds for a biblical divorce is not imprisonment. It's called keeping your vows. Or the teenager who feels trapped at home because they think they're ready to move out on their own and they feel imprisoned, restrained by mom and dad. Yeah, that's not imprisonment. It's called honoring your father and mother. And so, again, Paul's imprisonment, I think, serves as a metaphor for any restrictive circumstance beyond our control that prevents us from reaching a good goal or desire. So why is accepting God's sovereignty so important for our contentment? Well, here's letter A and B. Um, First, A, it gets our eyes off ourselves. Paul could have updated the Philippians on the difficulty of his circumstances and pleaded for help. He could have asked for more financial support, complained about the limitations of his confinement, Missing the adventures of traveling throughout the world. He could have focused on the injustice that had been done to him, but he didn't. Isn't that what most of us would have done? I know I would have. Uh, we, We would focus on what we're not doing instead of focusing on what God is doing. And this is where good theology comes into play, and this is why it's important to have good theology. Because by applying what he knew about God's sovereignty, Paul was able to do letter B. He was able to get his eyes back on what God is doing. He he was able to avoid the temptation of being self-focused and bitter and frustrated and upset, and instead able to get his eyes on what God was doing with him in prison. It says in verse 13, you see it there in your Bibles, he says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. 
But some translations say palace guard. Um, it suggests that Paul was actually not in a dungeon this first time round. I think he was the second time he was in prison. But in this first imprisonment, um, it's highly probable, most likely, that he was staying in Caesar's palace. And that's because, according to one commentator, the Imperial Guard was an elite group of Roman soldiers who served as a special bodyguard for Caesar. This regiment was approximately 9,000 special forces. Sometimes they exerted control over Caesar, whoever the Caesar was, actually. This reveals how much Paul, excuse me, how much Caesar feared Paul. What it says to me is that Caesar didn't want Paul downtown or just outside the city limits at the county jail. Caesar wanted Paul in his house, and Caesar wanted his bodyguards watching Paul. Paul was dangerous to Caesar. I want to keep an eye on him. I want Paul, the apostle of the Christian church, under the same roof as me. That's what I think was going on here. And so, although such a group of elite forces, bodyguards for Caesar, would intimidate most men, they didn't intimidate Paul because Paul feared only God. And as I remember, uh, someone once said, I can't remember if it was Tozer or someone else, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. And that was certainly the case with Paul. The apostle was making it clear to the Philippians, though, here in verse 13, what most would consider a setback is actually a huge step forward as he takes the gospel right into the very heart of the Roman Empire. He's not only in the capital of the Roman Empire, he's in Caesar's palace being guarded by Caesar's bodyguards, and he's sharing the gospel with them. These are the guys that are closest to Caesar. So Paul says, man, things are great. I'm doing good. South African pastor Andrew Murray was, uh, he has one of the greatest insights about God's sovereignty and contentment that I have ever seen. Um, and I was reminded of it again while preparing this message this week and studying. Uh, when Murray was visiting England in 1895, uh, he began to suffer pain from a previous back injury. And while he was recuperating, his hostess told him of a woman who was in great trouble and wanted to know if he had any counsel for her. And so Murray, as he was on his back trying to recover from back pain, wrote a note and said to the hostess, give this to the woman downstairs who wants counsel. And here's what he wrote. In times of trouble, say, first, God brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place, and in that I will rest. Next, he wrote on that piece of paper, he will keep me in his love and give me grace in the trial to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn, and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And lastly, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. And therefore, and this final line is what I've seen most often quoted by Murray, therefore, I am here 
by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. Now, I feel compelled to clarify for the fear of being misunderstood uh, something here. Contentment is never meant to excuse complacency. Uh, for example, it, if you are ill, you, you shouldn't say, well, oh well, <laughs> and not put any effort into getting better. Uh, or if you're unemployed, you shouldn't say, oh well, I want to be content, so you don't go looking for a job. It, it's possible you can be content while stepping out in faith and doing what you can do. And so, um, accepting God's sovereignty, accepting that it exists, accepting that he's in control, accepting that he is directing your life in ways that you do not always see, it can increase your contentment and reduce your frustration, I might add. Trusting God's sovereignty can help us rejoice in difficult circumstances. If you would look back at the text with me, I'm going to read verse 14. Next, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's the second truth that Paul tells us. Believing in God's sovereignty boosts our confidence. If we really believe God is sovereign, we should have a boosted confidence. That's what, that's what happened here. It was common thinking for authorities back then, just as it is today, hey, if you want to stop a movement, stop an uprising, just remove the leader, and it'll go away. And that was certainly the thinking for the Romans who wanted to see Christianity go away. Well, we just take out the Apostle Paul, Everybody else will see what we're doing to Paul. They'll be afraid of us, and they won't want to have the same fate as Paul. And so all these other Christians will quiet down and go away. <laughs> Verse 14 says, no, that didn't happen. Instead, the Christians did the unthinkable. They got even bolder in sharing their witness and their gospel, the gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ. Once again, it backfired into another God-ordained reversal. The believers became even bolder in their witness for Christ. Why? Because seeing how much Paul was willing to give up and suffer for the Lord proved the validity of the gospel. And it inspired them to be bold as well. So it did scare them. Instead it went, wow, look at what Paul's willing to do. He really believes this stuff. Well, then we're going to go and tell all our friends and relatives Repent, the kingdom of God is near. You're a sinner. Your sin separates you from God. You're going to hell unless you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He loves you and wants a relationship with you. If you receive him by faith, you can have forgiveness and peace with God and eternal life. Now, it should increase our boldness as well today. Like, are you aware of how the early apostles died for the faith? Um, for example, um, James... John's older brother, the Apostle John, he was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. Uh, Philip, he was scourged, imprisoned, and crucified in 54 AD. Matthew, he was beheaded in Ethiopia in 60 AD. 
James, Jesus' half-brother, he was clubbed to death in 66. Uh, Matthias, stoned and beheaded. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark, dragged to pieces in Alexandria. Peter, oh, the famous Peter, crucified upside down by the emperor Nero. Paul, well, he's writing Philippians in 61 to 62 AD. He was eventually beheaded in 66, about four to five years later. Jude, crucified in 72. Bartholomew, beaten and crucified. Thomas, doubting Thomas, tortured, speared, and thrown into a fiery oven. Luke, it's believed he was possibly hung from an olive tree in 93 AD. And then John, he was the last living apostle. John, well, he didn't have it easy either. He was arrested, sent to Rome, cast into a large vessel filled with boiling oil that did not harm him. Then he was released, banished to the island of Patmos, confined, a type of imprisonment, restricted movement. He wrote the book of Revelation then. He was later released from Patmos, returned to Ephesus, and died around 98 AD. Now, although John was the only apostle to escape a violent death, he did experience the confines of being incarcerated on Patmos, as I said earlier. Now, I share all that to say the suffering and sacrifices made by the early church apostles, I mean, it, it reminds us, it should remind us that they really be- believed who Jesus was and Jesus' message. They were with him, they saw him, some saw him resurrected, and they were willing to die for this. I mean, normal human beings don't die for something that's fake. When, when, you know, when, the, when the sword is put to their throat and it's renounced Christianity or off with your head, normally a, a sane human being, if they really don't believe in Christianity, they go, okay, you win. I'll go home. I'll stop talking about Jesus. That didn't happen with these guys. They, they considered the message of the gospel more important than anything else in their lives, including their safety, their acceptance by the world, their possessions, their job, even their own families. They considered it an honor to suffer for Christ and his gospel. <laughs> Here's the question that came to my mind that it was bugging me last night. So if it bugs me, it's got to bug you. I'm sharing it with you. I can't stand to be bugged and convicted by myself. So what if the eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry who died for the gospel, what, what if their death and sacrifice was enough evidence for us to be bold? What if we just let that be enough? Instead of going, well, you know, I'd be bolder if I was with Jesus like they were. You know, if I had seen all the miracles, man, I'd be believing too. Now, there were a lot of people in the Gospels that saw all the miracles and heard Jesus and touched Jesus and didn't believe him. So, believing in God's sovereignty should boost our confidence that he's been working for a few centuries and he's still working today and he'll be working after we leave this earth. Next, let's look at verses 15 to 18. So Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ. Is he talking about the 
explosion of the gospel since he was put in prison, the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen. The gospel was supposed to die out. Well, he says, nah, there's some indeed preaching from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. There's that word again. I rejoice. So what's he saying? Well, here's number three in your outline. Applying God's sovereignty to your circumstances acknowledges his control. By, by taking the doctrine of God's sovereignty, like the verses that were on the right side of the column on the table on the first page of your outline, and all the other verses, there's a lot more, I didn't have room to list them all, taking those verses and applying them to your life and your difficult circumstances. It should acknowledge that he's in control. Some commentators, teachers, and study Bibles believe that in verses 15 to 18, Paul was referring to false teachers. However, there really isn't any evidence in the text to support this, because normally when Paul called out false teachers, he would either state that they were preaching a different gospel or counter the false teaching with truth to prove they were wrong. But he does neither here in verses 15 to 18. His lack of alarm implies that both groups were preaching the same gospel. So who are these people that are both preaching? He's saying one group is doing it with ill motives to get back at him, and the other group is preaching the gospel out of love. Who are these folks? Well, the difference between these two groups was not their message, but rather their motive. While one group was emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to spread the message for God's glory, it appears the other group was spreading the gospel, but they were doing it to make Paul's life more difficult. Perhaps they were hoping Caesar would see this get more frustrated and go downstairs and give a few more whippings to Paul. Your people are still out there preaching. We're going to cut your rations, or we're going we're to scourge you some more, or take away some privileges. Maybe that's what these ill-motivated preachers were trying to do. <laughs> What's Paul say? Hey, gospel's still getting out there. It's still going forward. Instead of getting upset, Paul once again applies his theology to his situation. He acknowledges God's still in control, and the message is still getting out. Will the Lord eventually deal with those who were preaching the gospel for selfish gain? Of course. The Lord knows all the hearts of all men. God's going to deal with those, with those people. Can the Lord still use such people to spread the gospel to create more converts? Of course. He can do that too. So what's this mean for us? Well, dear loved ones, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, 
there will be times when he will put you in what feels like a prison. If it hasn't happened already, take good notes today, because it will eventually. Trust me. It's a season in which you cannot pray your way out, buy your way out, see your way out, work your way out, talk your way out, contact enough friends. You are just stuck where God has you. And you have to wait in your restraints until he releases you. Now, why does he do this? That's a good question. I've wondered that myself many times. The potential reasons are numerous, unlimited. Too many to list. But a simple answer on why God does this. Why does he sometimes put believers in a a prison? Why does he sometimes hem them in? For his glory and for our good. But when it happens, you too can experience the joy that Paul was experiencing. He was was on lockdown. He could not go anywhere. I mean, try to put yourself in Paul's shoes. This guy, he got around a lot. Some of you say you like to travel. Well, Paul traveled more. (laughs) And then imagine... You know, being him, traveling and planting churches and seeing all the things that he got to see and healing people and miracles and preaching the gospel and folks getting saved and baptisms and all that, and all of a sudden, that's done. And he's locked inside a room, chained to a soldier, and he can have some visitors, but it's house arrest. Mr. Free Spirit, church planter, can't go anywhere anymore. when this happens to you and it will if it hasn't already you too can experience Paul's joy by acknowledging that God is in control and you are not did you know that? you're not but don't worry you're not the first and you won't be the last Um, here's a few verses I wish some, some people had shared with me when I was a younger believer before I went through a couple God incarcerations, I've, by God's grace, never been incarcerated by silver government, but um, I have been on lockdown with the Lord before. And here's some verses that uh, I wish somebody had shared with me, this concept. So I'm going to share it with you, hope it helps you. Uh, David experienced this. This is not often talked about in Psalm 139. It's one of his most popular psalms. But David says in Psalm 139, verse 5, You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. I've looked in in detail in the Hebrew text and commentaries on this verse, and in essence what David is saying is, you've boxed me in so I can go nowhere, and then you put your hand on me. Which is, it's a heavy hand. (laughs) He's... He's saying, I felt the full weight of God's hand working on me, okay? And I could go nowhere. I couldn't run from God. God had me on lockdown. I was just trapped. 
Job experienced the same thing uh, during his extended season of trial with the Lord. Job says this in Job 19, verse 8, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. Jeremiah, one of God's prophets, uh, many call the weeping prophet. He had a very difficult assignment preaching to the people of Israel during another season where they were unrepentant. And so because they couldn't get back at God, they basically just beat the snot out of Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah, in his depression and frustration, he wrote this in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, and though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones, and he has made my path crooked. It's just, oh, that's heavy, isn't it? Just, but again, Jeremiah loved the Lord, one of God's prophets. Even he experienced a season where the Lord put him in a holding pattern. He wanted to wiggle out, and he couldn't. It was like the greatest headlock in wrestling that you could ever do. He couldn't go anywhere. Because when God hems you in, there's no getting out until the Lord decides to release you. Now, after they were released, David, Job, and Jeremiah all concluded, God is still sovereign, And he's still good. So trusting God's sovereignty can help us rejoice in difficult circumstances. That's why it's really important to have a fully orbed theology in the scriptures. So you know the word and you can quote the word back to yourself when you're on lockdown with Jesus. So how do we apply this? Here's two applications that come to mind. What should we do now that we've read about Paul's imprisonment and seen Paul's attitude and how he perceived what God was doing? Well, while in difficult circumstances, I want to encourage you to do number one, and I'm I'm trying to do it myself when I find myself in this situation. Lead your emotions instead of letting them lead you. Lead your emotions instead of letting them lead you. The Lord wants you to lead your emotions instead of your emotions leading you. And the reason why is because you leading them is better for you. This truth is seen throughout the scriptures in the commands that show up related to emotions. We are told how we should feel because the assumption is we can choose to feel that way. So, so for example, and we're going to talk about this throughout this series, one of the things that Paul repeats in Philippians is, rejoice. I'm rejoicing. Be joyful. And the reason he says that is because you have to choose joy. Paul wants the Philippians to choose it instead of waiting for it to come around. Because sometimes it just won't come. You won't feel like it. It's something we're told to choose. The believer who does this with the Lord's help will make significant steps forward in their maturity. When when a believer can take the word and go, I'm going to feel 
and think the way this verse says instead of letting my emotions get out of control. That's a huge step forward in maturity. And the reason, one of the many reasons why, is that we are not victims or hostages to our feelings like the world tries to tell us. You hear it in language on TV shows and movies like, I just couldn't help it. I fell out of love with you. Why did you cheat on him or her? I don't know. It just happened. We were having a few drinks and we were together and we couldn't help ourselves. That's the world's way of saying, I'm a hostage to my feelings. I cannot control my emotions. I have to go with every impulse I have. That's bondage to sin. (laughs) The Lord wants better for us there. That's why... There are a lot of commands in the scriptures related to emotions. Think this way. Feel this way. Choose to do it. You are free to do that, especially if you know Christ. You're not a victim or a hostage to your emotions. So by applying God's word with the help of his grace and the power of his spirit, we can lead our emotions. Secondly, while in difficult circumstances... Second application that comes to mind, focus on what you can do instead of what you cannot. One of the easiest things that our sin nature likes to do when we feel hemmed in or on lockdown with Jesus is, is we can tend to focus on our limitations or on what, we, on what we cannot do. I want to do this, but I can't. I tried to do this, but I can't. And this didn't work, and that didn't work. And if I wasn't in this situation, I'd be doing this instead. And I know this for a fact, and I'm a th- an authority on this particular subject because I'm very good at it. Um, and I can give you more examples later if you need some, but, but when we focus on what we cannot do, it tends to lead to complaining and complacency. Instead, don't miss what Paul did. Paul focused on what he could do within the confines of Caesar's palace, chained to an imperial soldier. If we focus on what we can do, we can leave the rest to the Lord. God-imposed limitations are designed to make us more humble, more dependent, and more desperate for him. And when Paul did this, it prevented frustration and it enabled him to choose joy. Sure, Paul couldn't travel the world and plant churches anymore and heal the sick and baptize folks. That's okay. He could pray, he could influence, he could witness, he could encourage, and he could write a good chunk of the New Testament. In fact, I think that's one of the things, looking back in hindsight, I think God was doing. I think the Lord sovereignly put Paul in prison before he died, because he wanted Paul to write all these letters for us. And it probably wouldn't have happened if Paul was still out there planting churches, doing the free spirit ministry. So focus on what you can do instead of what you cannot, because the Lord knows your limitations. 
he probably has even put them in place for a reason. Well, before we conclude our time uh, together, I'd like to introduce you to someone else who also trusted in God's sovereignty in difficult circumstances. If you don't know the name John Bunyan, I hope you'll never forget it after today. Bunyan was a gifted and popular Baptist preacher in the 1600s. He ministered uh, in Bedford, England. Sadly, his rise to prominence came at the end of a a 20-year season of religious freedom in England. Uh, In 1660, King Charles II ascended to the throne and issued an edict decreeing that anyone not conforming to the Church of England would be arrested. This was a season in those days where the monarchy ruled the Church of England, governed over the Church. In essence, it was a government church. Well, if you know anything about John Bunyan, that didn't stop him. He kept preaching, kept preaching the gospel. So in January of 1661, he was arrested and sentenced to three months in the county jail. At the time, he was about 32 years old, had four children with his first wife. She had died two years earlier. He remarried and was in prison before his second anniversary with his second wife. And one of his four children was blind, a daughter named Mary. After three months had passed, Bunyan was brought up out of prison before the magistrate, local magistrate. And the magistrate gave him two options. Agree not to preach publicly this gospel again, or go back to jail. And I... Bunyan's response is priceless. It's so good. I, 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 I put it on the keynote screen because I want you to see it. Um, it's, he's famous for this. Bunyan's response was, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. I would rather remain in prison until moss grows on my eyelids than fail to do what God commanded. All you got to do is get on Google, and if you just punch in John Bunyan Moss, I did this last night, it pulls up that quote, and several people reference it in books and blogs and stuff. So, his wish was granted. He was sent back to prison. He chose the Lord over family. Very difficult decision. He writes in some of his books and diaries that it just ripped his heart out to be separated from his family, but... When forced to choose between family and the Lord, he's like, I've got to go with the Lord. Obviously, he understood what Jesus said in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must hate his own mother and brother and family. Jesus was using hyperbole. He didn't mean literally hate them. He just meant your love for me should be so great that in comparison to your love for your family, it should look like you hate them. But I come first. Well, weeks became months, months became years. He spent 12 years in prison. Over the next 12 years, Bunyan made the most of his time within the confines, the limitations, the constraints. And he wrote several of the 30 books that he would eventually publish. One book he wrote in particular changed his life and became the world's most widely circulated 
book after the Bible. The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about a man named Christian who is making the long journey from the city of destruction, which is the world, to the celestial city, heaven. The book depicts the highs and lows of the Christian life with profound truths illustrated in a memorable way. Millions of Christians have been encouraged and seen their faith strengthened by reading this literary classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan was released from prison in 19... Sorry, not... 1672. Um, that would have been a long time in prison if it, if it was 1972. Um, 1672. He was released, so from 1660 to 1672, 12 years. He went back to preaching and then landed back in prison for six more months in 75 because he was preaching without a license. He was released again and became one of England's most famous writers. In August of 1688, he encountered heavy rain while riding his horse to go help a father and son get reconciled. Unfortunately, he caught a cold, developed a fever, and he died a few days later at the age of 59. John Bunyan has said in different ways in his writings that you know, had he not landed in jail, suffered for the gospel, he probably wouldn't have written Pilgrim's Progress. But out of that was born a very powerful book that God used to bless millions of Christians after he died and left this earth. So, if you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you may not always end up where you want to be but you'll always end up where you should be. And that's why trusting in God's sovereignty can help us rejoice in difficult circumstances. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, I just can't help but be honest like David was in the Psalms. It's difficult to hear a message about difficult circumstances. Our sin nature having been raised in first world, 20th to 21st century culture, loves comfort. We idolize comfort. We will go to great lengths to avoid discomfort and pain and inconvenience. And so, Lord, even as we hear of Paul being incarcerated for the gospel, or even John Bunyan, Several centuries later, it's, it's difficult for us here in America to understand that. But Lord, we believe by your grace and by your spirit, you can help us. So please, would you help us? Help us to get our priorities right in our hearts where we can say, like Paul would say, it doesn't matter what happens to me so long as Jesus is glorified and the gospel is spread. Would you, would you help us by your grace and by your spirit, Lord, to get Jesus up on the throne of our hearts so that if we are put in a situation where we have to choose between Jesus 
and someone we love, or family, or maybe our own life, that we would choose Jesus. Father, I want to pray for those who might be listening today here in this room or online who, who feel like they are in prison. They, they can't relocate. They can't get a different job. They, they, they can't get out of the situation they're in, and it's uncomfortable. It's, it's a struggle. It's, they feel like they're just floundering. Please, Lord, would you help them to see what you're doing? Would you please help them to see what good you are up to? Would you just pull back the curtain a little bit and give them some encouragement? And Lord, in your perfect timing, would you release them? And Lord, for those who maybe have never been hemmed in, they've never experienced it. In fact, perhaps they have worked their entire life to try and be in control so they can live the lie that you're not in control. Lord, would you gently and lovingly do business with them as well? Father, we want to be used by you because nothing else on this earth matters more than that. We want to live lives that, are, that make an impact, that have an eternal impact for you. So please, Lord, would you use us as fallen and imperfect as we are? Would you use us in our weakness? to glorify your son and to help spread the good news that he brought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.